What's up, everyone? You're listening to the seventh episode of Hot Blooded. I'm your host, Kat Jones, and this is my podcast where I talk to musicians about love, rock and roll, and whatever else comes up along the way. The guest this week is a man named Kenny Hickey, who was the guitarist of Typo Negative, and these days also fronts a band called Silver Tomb. But before we get into that, here's a little backstory. So when we talk about love and rock and roll, and particularly love and heavy metal, it's impossible not to bring up Typo Negative. If you're unfamiliar with Typo Negative, they were a gothic metal band that formed in the early 90s that sang very frankly about romance. Uh, All aspects and consequences of romance, like sex, lust, falling head over heels in love, heartbreak, betrayal, infidelity, etc. But they simultaneously sang very frankly and sometimes very tongue-in-cheek about things like depression, misery, and the acceptance of death being all around us in life. And all of this music was written and sung by a cynical, terrifying, giant, six-foot-eight dude with long black hair and vampire fang implants named Peter Steele. And ask anyone in the metal world and they'll tell you, Peter Steele was one of the sexiest men who ever lived. Keep in mind, at the time, much like Dave Windorf from Monster Magnet mentioned back in episode two, heavy metal was mostly made by men for men and was often this extremely toxic masculine culture full of sweaty dudes beating each other up. Now, I'm not saying it's not often still like that now, and I'm also not saying that a ton of women, myself included, didn't like it back then, but it was a pretty different scene in the 80s and early 90s, and metal was mostly marketed towards men. So basically what happened was this band in Brooklyn, New York called Carnivore broke up. They were one of the angriest, most aggressive metal bands of all time, with a following of equally angry and aggressive dudes. And Peter decided he wanted to break that mold and form a new band with a slower, more sensual sound. His guitarist in Carnivore turned down the opportunity, so he called up his friend Kenny Hickey to join the band instead. And they burst onto the scene with this new sound and these topics that were not covered by any other popular metal bands at the time. Not only were they open about their feelings, but their music was, by and large, written about and for women. And Peter was the perfect person to pioneer and normalize this type of music because when you look like he did and get laid as often as he did, who's going to fuck with you? Anyway, in the beginning, after sending to Roadrunner Records in 1991, they put out a couple of albums that, while having... A lot of the qualities I mentioned previously were still pretty abrasive and angry, albeit tongue-in-cheek. They were called Slow, Deep, and Hard and Origin of the Feces. Slow, Deep, and Hard, which, side note, is a great example of their simultaneous humor and sensuality, was written pretty much entirely about a woman who cheated on Peter and broke his heart. And it was basically meant to be catharsis for him while he was getting over her. But by the time they recorded it, he was pretty much over it. So the end result is this angry but kind of hilarious record where you hear him gleefully calling her names and screaming theatrically over sounds of her having sex. But the two albums that followed that era, Bloody Kisses and October Rest, represented a total shift in their direction toward that slow, sensual goth sound for which they eventually became world famous. Kenny's guitar tone sounds like satin sheets on your ears, and they sang about threesomes and Christian women masturbating and hot goth girls who love themselves, you name it. The entire experience of their music turned from aggression to pure unadulterated sex. During that time, not only did women start coming to shows in droves, but they also had some pretty huge pop culture moments as well. Like Peter got invited onto an episode of the Jerry Springer show about groupies and also posed nude for Playgirl. Their backstage experience also turned completely bananas and wherever they went, women and men wanted to party with them. This continued on until the wheels kind of started to come off in the early 2000s and ultimately Peter passed away in 2010 due to an aortic aneurysm at the age of 48, and the band broke up. So to this day, Peter Steele and Typo Negative as a whole are considered to be cultural icons, not only in metal, but in goth sexuality as well. So for this podcast, 
I really wanted to talk to Kenny Hickey for a couple of reasons. One, because I wanted to know what it was like back then, watching the shift between playing aggressive music and uh, switching to this woman-centric, sultry sound that changed the entire culture surrounding the band. And two, Kenny is still married to Bonnie Hickey, the same woman he's been with since the 80s, meaning that while all this insanity was going on at the height of Typo's fame, and while he was on the road constantly with no cell phone or internet to aid in communication, he was also trying to navigate a serious, committed relationship. So here is our conversation. What's been keeping you busy during this crazy time we're in right now? What else keeps me busy? Music. I'm in my studio more than ever. I've been ordering a lot of stuff from Sweetwater and spending money I shouldn't be spending. (laughs) (laughs) Buying gear. But um, I'm loving it, you know. It's time I could spend in the studio and don't have to feel guilty about there's nowhere to go tomorrow. You know, I mean, I split the time up between my music and uh, hanging out with my wife, you know. Go mm-hmm. shopping with masks on and gloves, you know. So um, I'm, I'm loving it. You know, I got a, kind of built a new Pro Tools rig in the last three months. Spent a good amount of money, and I'm having a ball. That's awesome. And mm-hmm. how has how has the the stuff right now been affecting Silver Tomb? Did you have any tours uh, planned or anything? Yeah, shot us right out of the water. I mean, we were supposed to go on tour. North America with Monster Magnet in oh, March right. 18th. It was like March 18th or something like that. We were just supposed to be getting home like two days ago. Oh my gosh. You know, we were going to do like Canada, North America, and now also it's, it was pushed up to you know, January 2021, that tour. And then also I just got noticed that Cycle Las Vegas has been pushed up to 2021. We were supposed to do that as well in August. So, yeah, you know, have you, have you been hurting just as bad as everybody else? Yeah. What an incredibly frustrating you know? time. Um, yeah, I I actually totally forgot that you were going to be on that Monster Magnet tour. Um, I actually, mm. Dave Windorf was the second guest on this podcast. <laughs> so, oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, we had a great time. I absolutely love that dude. He is, he told me, guy, yeah. he told me some wild ridiculous stories um so it's cool that you guys are both on it so anyway um to start things off with typo negative um peter you know was like the the biggest presence as far as like writing lyrics and his his press presence and everything but i've always felt and this is going to totally sound like i'm you know blowing smoke up your ass but i've always felt like your guitar solos have really sort of sealed every song being like a really sensual song and being really like to cap off the romantic feel of it, like in Be My Druidist and in Love You to Death and stuff like that. Like your guitar solo is like a soaring part at the end that really ties it all together. So how, when you guys decided to shift from like a more aggressive sound to the more romantic sound that you had later, how did you approach that with your guitar playing? Did you did you decide to have that feeling, or did it just come naturally? Well, you know, Pete always lays he laid down the foundation and the work for it. You know, I mean, he, that's the direction he wanted to go in. He wanted to get more atmospheric, um, melodic, and um, yeah, I mean, whatever would go with the song, you know, and more of a dream state kind of guitar tone. A lot more effects, um, reverb, you know, anything to make it sound like you're in a silky dream, mm-hmm. you know, because that's just kind of like what he was going for. And that's, that's how the stuff was developing, you know. I feel like silky dream is a really excellent way of phrasing that. Uh, yeah, especially the October <laughs> Rush. The whole thing, you know, it's a very silky layered album, you know. It's very furry all over, yeah. you know, so... <laughs> 
it puts you in a in a state of mind, you know. It really puts you in a in a place. Mm-hmm. You know, you can like uh, picture the the candles and the smell of wax burning. You know, mm-hmm. when you listen to it. Yeah. So the guitar solos had to be have that waxy candle burning feel and sound to them. You know, all the guitar work did. Mm-hmm. You know, Peter Peter did a good a lot of the guitar work on it as well. So. No. So after the first two records, you know, after like Slow, Deep and Hard and Origin of the Feces, the band definitely took a turn. Obviously, Bloody Kisses still had some like experimental, wacky stuff on it, but there was a lot more of a romantic sound. How did you guys decide to shift the band that direction? No, I think it was really... Like a unanimous decision or anything. That's the, that's the stuff Peter was coming up with, you know. It's the way he wanted to go. Um, he's getting a lot of attention from females. I think he just wanted to amplify that. Tell you the truth. You know, he had uh, much of October Us was, was worked out, you know, when he, he came down to the studio, a pretty, pretty laid out format for the record. So he had a good, cons- good clear idea of what he wanted to do you know that's the way he wanted to go he wanted to get more romantic more atmospheric and he i think he wanted to get away from the aggression and the screaming and the yelling you know he's, he's kind of sick of doing anything for too long you know mm-hmm. and at that point you know between carnivore and everything else and all the hardcore stuff that he did he was screaming and yelling for many years so enter the crooning phase of type of negative. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, yeah, it's really interesting. It's like the chicken or the egg, like which comes first women giving you more attention and then your music becoming more romantic. Cause you want more of it or like purposely writing romantic music so that women will give you more attention. Well, I think that, um, that the, the first idea coming from slow, deep and hard to, um, to uh, Bloody Kisses was to write more melodic. That was the challenge, you know. But it's like Pete always said, it's, it's way harder to write a melody than to scream your head off. So that was the first stage, you know, making music that was more melodic, which required singing. You know, and that's how he started developing his singing style and his tone, which was very unique right from the start, you know. I mean, you could hear pieces of it in Slow, Deep, and Hard. There was moments where he almost sang, you know, but, you know, it just was taken further with Bloody Kisses. So it started with trying to become more melodic, you know, keeping the dark atmosphere of the band, you know, and the attitude of the band, but being more melodic. You know, and it was purposely um, geared towards being romantic or females involved. I think Peter was always honest, you know, with his writing and... Women were always a very upfront concern for him, you know, front and center. Mm-hmm. I mean, even Slow, Deep and Hard, even though Slow, Deep and Hard is basically, you know, 70 minutes of screaming and yelling, it's all about a woman, you know. Right. <laughs> Just not in, uh, <laughs> not in uh, such a positive light, you know. Right. He was very mad at that woman. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was about, you know, being hurt. So, and the, the phases of emotion you go through. When you've been um, betrayed, you know. So, do you remember the story of what happened that inspired him to write that song or that whole album? Oh, uh, yeah, his ex-girlfriend, um, who he was really crazy about. I I won't mention her name because I can't remember her name. But um, and this is right before this is before right before typo formed. She uh, apparently cheated on him. He was very in love with her. And she was, uh, you know, she was a kind of a goth chick. You know, she was, she liked um, alternative uh, underground stuff, you know. She, she was listening to Nick Cave, stuff like that, you know. Thought Peter was like a heavy metal moron, you know. <laughs> Ended up cheating on him and um, hence gave birth to the uh, the lyrics for uh, Slow, Deep, and Hard, which is basically, you know, 70 minutes of spewing, of raging, you know. 
So, yeah, she was the inspiration for that. I had never actually, I don't believe I ever met him, met her in person. I might have for a minute somewhere at some show, but probably not. You know, she was pretty much out of Peter's life when Typo formed. Typo formed in the summer of 89, so that was already over. The, the lyrics were already written. And shortly after we had formed, we had started um, actually rehearsing the stuff in a small studio on Quentin Road. So I heard all about this lady through those lyrics only. <laughs> so, <laughs> what you know about her is what I know about her. <laughs> so in the, the first song on the record unsuccessfully coping with the natural beauty of infidelity. I, every time I say the name of that song, <laughs> I feel like I'm always going to fuck it up because it's so long. But um, so that song, it's always been really funny to me. It's like kind of a tongue-in-cheek funny song where he's like making fun of himself just as much as he's angry at the woman because he's like, like, you make me hate myself. And... <laughs> Um, oh, he stuff. meant that. He meant that. Right. But like, there's always like a, a funny way to it that like you can laugh with him, even though he's going through yeah, heartache. It's a tragic irony of, of, of his sense of humor. You know, it's, uh, he always saw the, the folly in it and in, in the tragedy of it. And in the middle of the song, there's like the woman who's like orgasming and then he screams at the end, like right when she's like coming. <laughs> well, uh, well that, that, what that's supposed to be is she's banging some dude and he walks in and opens the door and catches them and screams. <laughs> ah! <laughs> it's genius. <laughs> yeah, it's genius. Well, that song also has one of my, f my favorite funny typo moments where he goes, Kenny, and then you play a guitar solo. Uh, <laughs> and uh, also when he's like, check this out, and like does his bass solo. So it seemed like you guys were having a really good time, even though he was going through heartache. But yeah, at that point, I think he was over it. You know, the lyrics had have been written. He was pretty much over her by then. By the time we were actually recording it, you know, and, and working out the music, she was long gone. So after that phase, when you guys started going more romantic and writing songs like Christian Woman on Bloody Kisses, um, did you notice a shift in the amount of women coming to shows? Um, well, when we were locally, we were, we were gaining popularity locally. There was. It went from, because obviously when we first started out, it went from basically a carnivore fan base, skinheads, to metalheads, and then like Bloody Kisses, it was mixed, you know. There was some females, not many. I'd say maybe, I don't know, 12%, mm -hmm. something like that. But only after Bloody Kisses was released, and then we started touring, and... um. The first video was released for Black Number One, and then we started started being played. Then a flood of of women started coming down to the shows, and you know I don't know exactly why. It's a mix between the music and Peter's image, I would imagine. You know, mm -hmm. so it wasn't like um, we were aiming to do that. You know, we were, we were targeting females. It just happened, and then I guess we just went with it. You know. And really, you know, at the time, that grunge exploded, right? And everybody was wearing flannel and, and knapsacks and stuff. And uh, <laughs> they were playing down the whole sex, drugs, and rock. Sex, sex and rock and roll thing was, it wasn't cool anymore. The drugs were, but the sex and rock and roll wasn't cool anymore. But we were still like this stripper band. <laughs> All <laughs> town. And like, every night there was like 80 strippers, you know? It's unbelievable. That's amazing. That must have been yeah. really fun. It was fun, yeah. It was a lot of fun. I mean, every night was a Saturday night. You know, the people were like, we would like pack the front lounge of the bus and pass drinks out to everybody and crank up the music. Everybody would be dancing. The bus would be rocking. <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. We had a blast. You know, it was always like, well, this could be over any minute, so let's make the best of it right now. Who knew that it would go on, you know, 25 years? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the first time that a woman paid attention to you because you were in typo negative. 
<sighs> I'd say that'd have to go way, way back, you know, to the very beginning. And, and you know, playing Lamore and stuff. I don't remember specifically. You know, I do remember that I used to basically live in Lamore, you know, that there was the rock club in Brooklyn everybody went to. And I had my girlfriends here and there, a couple of waitresses here and there back in the past, but once the typo started gaining popularity and suddenly, you know, a lot of a lot of girls are interested in me. Which is, you know, obviously bullshit. But <laughs> Yeah, it is what it is. I had already been with Bonnie, who's now my wife, and with Bonnie in nineteen eighty six. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Pre typo. Oh. What was it like? Being in a serious relationship while all this was going on. No, uh, really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, we we had a uh, volatile relationship right from the start, me and Bonnie. And, of course, rock and roll just intensified that and complicated it even more, you know. So it was very much on and off, breaking up, getting back together, you know. I remember specifically things like being in on Sunset Boulevard in California, tired, hungover at, eight, at nine in the morning with her breaking up with me on a payphone, you know? <laughs> That's it! I believe in you! No way! <laughs> yeah. How did you win her back? I don't know. I always did. I was talked her into it, talked her back into it somehow. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You know, we, we spent a lot of time imploding, exploding, you know, it was very passionate and it was very, but it was very, um, uh, there was a lot of turmoil, you know, very tumultuous relationship always. And I guess, I think that was part of the, uh, attraction, you know, yeah. it was part of what made it hot, you know, these days were a lot calmer. You know? <laughs> <That's good. laughs> Yeah. It's not quite as crazy with Silver Tomb yeah, well, as it yeah, was. Yeah. Well, after two kids, you know, and, you know, being together for 31 years, 32 years, me and Bonnie, I think we finally found a place where we're um, content, more content with each other, you know, not always having to be at each other's throats and hearts simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they go hand in hand. <laughs> yeah. So did you guys have a system for getting groupies to the back to, to meet up with Peter? Or like, how did that work? <laughs> did they just sort of show um, up? Well, back in the day, yeah, we had um, texts that would go out and they, they would give out backstage passes and go pick them. You know, and Peter would like give them tips or money, the text if they came back one and he got lucky. <laughs> give them like 50 bucks, you know. So they would go in and they would just pile out, they'd just collect up the girls and then after the show, they'd all come backstage around the bus. Wow. I love was, that they got tipped extra for finding groupies for Peter. <laughs> Yeah. That yeah, must have been he, fun. He wouldn't stay on, he wasn't like Gene Simmons. He wouldn't stay on stage and like point at girls or anything like that. But like he would just, they would just go out and I would guess, you know, collect as many as they thought were good looking and then bring them back. As many as Peter could handle for one night. <laughs> I think they were, were, they were interested in themselves too. And the ones he rejected, you know, <laughs> probably wanted to go for them. Yeah. <laughs> But it was fun. It was always interesting, you know, and it was always these crazy people all backstage, you know, every night and party was on every night. Every night was a Saturday night for many years. What's one of like the weirdest things that you saw during that time? Oh, weird. I've seen a lot of horrible things too that were traumatic. You know, yeah. That I'd rather forget. You know, but you mean like as far as girls go? I mean, we could talk about whatever. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, like, at what point were you just looking at the scene going, oh, my God, what have we done? <laughs> this is insane. Um, Many points, you know, points where there were husbands and boyfriends banging on the bus door, you know, waiting for their wives and their girlfriends, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, at at certain points, I was like, what is going on here? You know, and we're going to pay for this one day. Yeah. Did Peter ever get into any fights with the boyfriends and husbands? No, he, he always managed to uh, 
stay separate from all that. You know, you always have a tour manager and people, you know, as a, as a, as a buffer between any of us in a situation like that. You know, there was, there was one situation that happened when we were opening for Danzig. This was probably 1993, I'm thinking. And then we were playing um, in San Francisco. I forget, the Warfield in San Francisco, I believe, with Danzig. And a guy, we were on stage, Typo was on stage, and a guy had tried to walk in through the front door without paying a ticket, and the security guy tried to stop him, and the guy took out a knife and stabbed him to death right there. Oh, my God. This is the security guy for the place. And my bus driver, who was like three feet tall, she may be like five feet, all right? That, three feet is an exaggeration, about five feet tall, tackled the guy down to the ground, got the knife from him. Anyhow, the guy went away for murder for 15 years, but apparently he was trying to kill somebody in typo negative. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'm assuming it was Peter. So, <laughs> for God knows what reason. But you think it might have been like a jealous ex? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, why else would it be? You know, I mean, the guy wasn't like psychotic or anything. He was angry. Right. And then 15 years later, as odd as it might be, we were playing the same venue again in San Francisco. And Josh was in the front lounge of the bus and got a knock on the door. And it was the same guy. <sighs> who had just been released from prison two days prior. <laughs> oh, my God. And he still wouldn't let it go? But what are the odds? Two days prior, he gets released, and we play in the same Jesus. damn place. Yeah, we had to, like, we took pictures. They took pictures of him and hung him up all over the venue, quarantined Peter for the whole show. Jesus. <laughs> were you were you terrified? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, people are crazy. You know? You never know what to expect from anybody. I mean, I think this was pre-Dimebag, what happened, before what happened to Dime, I believe. I don't really remember. I think so, though. It was. But, yeah, he, he got into the show, too. They let him in. And they just watched him. Wow. I can't mm. believe he didn't just get kicked out entirely. That seems insane I believe, to me. I, I believe they let him in. They checked him for anything, you know, for weapons or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like, listen, you can't kill them, but you can watch the show. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. So what was it like when the groupie situation got so ridiculous that Peter was then invited on Jerry Springer to do that groupie episode? That was hilarious, man. That was a hilarious episode. It was. <laughs> Peter had a knack for picking the what we call professionals the one girl in the uh in the um at the concert who showed up with a suitcase you know to move in with us <laughs> <laughs> we literally one girl came on the bus with a suitcase once i looked at peter like really <laughs> <laughs> it got whacked you know they uh after after like playgirl and all that stuff they started seeking him out you know mm-hmm and uh, Sharon Osbourne was like blown away by like at the time he was touring. We were we were touring with uh, with Ozzy. He had like a different like supermodel every day on the side of the stage. And Sharon was like, "I can't believe him." <laughs> <laughs> she was convinced he was gay because he was with a different woman every day. Oh my god! <laughs> he was faking it. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so behind the scenes. Did Peter ever seem like, he's like, what have I, like, what kind of thing am I creating here? Oh, he loved it. Were you kidding me? He loved every minute of it. I mean, there's few things he liked about doing, there's a few things he liked about rock and roll. Number one, he liked writing music and recording. And he liked drinking. And he liked women. He hated touring. He hated playing live. He hated doing interviews. He hated everything else. Yeah. So, you know, it was his dream come true, you know, and uh, you had a hair room backstage every day, you know. Spent a lot of money on plane flights and stuff, too. Flying them around. Flying the women around? <laughs> yeah. 
Did you always get along with the women that were hanging out with him? No, not always. So most <laughs> of the time they were lunatics. Sometimes they were nuts, you know. And then, you know, sometimes they would like, they would like talk down to like me and Johnny and stuff. Like since they were with Peter, they, you know, they had a higher position than us. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? Get out of here. <laughs> and then, you know, some of them are really cool and some of them are hung out for years. They would come back, you know, and they became friends with us, you know, over the years. So the... In the Jerry Springer episode, there's one girl where Peter looks at her and he goes, oh, I know her. Was that an act or was that really somebody that hung out with you guys all the time? Um, I think she was familiar. We all knew her. Everybody knew her. Everybody who toured knew her. You know? I, I, if I remember right. Yeah, she was you know, at all the shows. At all the Ozfests. A professional. Mm-hmm. And was there ever any time when any of this craziness was going on that you thought, like, screw this, I'm out of here? Or was it like, was it always a good time? I thrive on chaos. I always have. So it was never chaotic enough for me. No, never. Except not as far as that one, especially that period of time was all fun, you know, but uh, it only got bad because of drugs later on, later on, 2005, 2007 touring. Then, you know, even then I was, you know, I was always, you know, crazy, you know, as far as going on binges and stuff like that and um, doing crazy shit. But it didn't really get dark until like 2007, 2008, which is pretty much close to the end. Mm-hmm. You know, where I would just look around like, uh, yeah, the wheels are falling off the bus. This has got to be, it's got to end sooner or later. It's got to end in a bad way, you know. Mm -hmm. And it did. It did. It eventually did. Now, how does it feel now watching people idolize Peter as like a sex symbol or idolize typo negative as being like representational of sex and all of this stuff? Um, I think, like, to me, you know, typo represents a, a wide range of stuff, you know. I mean, it's so eclectic from the first release on. We still have skinheads that are into the band, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's one part of typo, you know. I think a pretty, it's, it's a big part, you know. And um, the whole Peter becoming a sex symbol thing was, 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 was cool and funny, but it was also, there was also a kind of like a downside of it, you know. Where um, I know he was kind of, in the end, he reject he um, he regretted doing the whole playgirl thing and stuff. So it became a little more, you know, too much image, and uh, I think it took some respect away from the band in some ways, you know. But I think it's an integral part of of who we are, what we are. I think that um, even though a lot of the lyrical content on um. October Rust is, you know, hyper-romantic. And mm -hmm. I think Peter was really being honest with a lot of that stuff. A lot of it was his fantasies, you know. I mean, not so much Wolf Moon. You know, that's a little bit of a, more of a tongue-in-cheek thing. How so? Well, you know what it's about, right? Yeah. Uh -uh. Well, to anybody who's listening, it's I don't about... Think, I, don't think he was, I don't think he was daydreaming about turning into a werewolf 50, you know. Going down on a girl with a period. I don't think really, I think he was just trying to be funny. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, we could do some French interviews and they were like, what does this song mean? It's so deep. <laughs> <laughs> Peter would come up with the explanation, you know. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, I think that's why he wrote the lyrics. Just so he knew that kind of stuff would happen, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you say Peter regretted doing the whole playgirl thing he did and yeah he absolutely there's, did. there's a a widely talked about rumor that that's because he discovered later that playgirl was mostly for gay men is that true no um that was one of the down things like for him like he was, it was kind of weird sometimes having gay guys come up to him but he was never like he was always cool with them and stuff and 
But um, no, that's not why. I think he just felt in the end, you know, it was a little bit. I mean, you go f- f- naked in front of millions of people, you know, at, at a spur of a moment. It, it was really a um, spur of a moment decision because the the opportunity came. And the decision was made within a day or two to do it. You know, he didn't have a whole lot of time to think about it because my manager was like, do it, do it, do it. It's going to be great press. And I was like, do it. It's going to be great press. You know, right. I was really not into it. I was like, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> you know, so at the time, we were kind of like coming to the top of our game and stuff, kind of high on life. And he was like, fuck it, I'll do it. And he went and did it. You know, it's like one of those things you maybe should have forgot. You forgot not to do. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe if you had like just a couple more days to really think about what you want in life, then maybe you would have made a different decision. We're playing in, I think, Norway or something. I forgot where. But I don't know if it was a festival or we went to a Metallica show. And we went backstage to see the guys. And uh, James Hetfield came out of the dressing room and looked at Peter and went, I saw you naked. I saw you naked. I mean, that was embarrassing. You know, I felt kind of embarrassed for him. But. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine having James Hetfield make fun of you because he saw your dick. It was kind of that would have been yeah. weird. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of a historic thing now. So it is what it is. But, you know, uh, he probably would have changed. He probably would have done it differently after the opportunity. If he could go back and redo it, he probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. I think. I think, yeah. Those pictures really crack me up because, you know, obviously they're great photos. Obviously, I and every straight woman likes to look at them. But what really makes me laugh about them was that he kept his Casio watch on. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>, Peter. He's <laughs> like, no, this is my accessory and I'm leaving it. His <laughs> <laughs> Casio watch. <laughs> Old Spice and Casio watches, man. And a sweaty green shirt. That was Peter for oh, real. Oh, man. <laughs> Sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so there, are, you know, there's been many different eras of feminism that have come and gone in rock and roll. And these days there are obviously still tons and tons of women that love Peter and love his lyrics, but there's also people who find his lyrics to be misogynist, especially in, in the early days, like, uh, you know, calling women, like calling the one woman that he's angry at a slut and stuff like that. What would you say to those people that maybe are taking those things that way? Oh, well, that's exactly what that, that was referring to one woman that, you were angry with her. What do you do when, when you're betrayed by a woman? You use language like that. Everyone does. Right. You know, right. when you're angry. So he was just being real. He wasn't generally being, you know, sexist. He wasn't being sexist at all. He was just expressing an inner emotion of frustration and anger at one woman, not all women. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say to that. Makes and as sense. Far as, as, and as far as that, that goes, you know, that whole theory, you know, the, the women were the center of Peter's life. And he had six sisters, you know, and a mother. Don't forget. Mm-hmm. Older. All of them older than him. So basically he had seven mothers. <laughs> <clears throat> so, you know, Peter loved women. You know, I don't believe that any of the type of lyrics were sexist. I personally completely agree with you. I just like having it on record, like the what you would tell those people. I feel like in my life, I have used just as bad of language, if not worse, about men that have wronged me. So, right. you know, right. that's just what happens well, when you're angry and heartbroken. Right. And we all do. So, and I'm sure all those people who are making these accusation, accusations do. And they're just the word police, you know. Right. Can't use these words. There was a there's a part in um, the behind the scenes after dark movie that's on YouTube. Um, I'm not sure what year it was filmed. Probably like Bloody Kisses era. Um, but there's a part where um, Johnny is pulled aside and and he says he feels like 
Typo was a band where men could express emotions that weren't necessarily acceptable at the time or like encouraged because you're allowed to talk about being heartbroken or sad or anything that wasn't necessarily going on in metal for many men at the time. Um, was that intentional? And do you, do you agree with that? Um, I think that um, Peter was just honest, you know, when, um, not with all of his lyrics, but when he was honest, he was really honest, you know. Those are my favorite, my favorite stuff that he writes, that he wrote, he lyrically, was, was the stuff that was true, that was based in truth. Like, the entire So Deep and Right, hard record, some of his best lyrics, um, uh, World Coming Down, incredible. Especially if you listen to the lyrics. I can't listen to the lyrics because they're all prophetic and they're, all, you know, they're so brutally true. They came true, all of them. Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, I mean, he was six foot six, 250 pounds. He didn't have any fear about expressing his softer side. Who's going to fuck with him, you know? Right. And it kind of like, it was kind of a charming thing, you know, to have such a big guy with fangs <laughs> talk about his feelings. <laughs> Do you feel like it's easier for men to express that stuff in 2020 than it was in 1985? Not in, not in metal, not in rock, no. Not in metal. I mean, metal is more over the top, you know, no dynamics, you know, everything. Ah, screaming more than ever. Mm -hmm. As far as I can hear. You know, so it's still the same thing, you know, as far as, uh, as, far as heavy music goes. You know. You, got it. you can't be talking about anything that doesn't kick ass, that isn't <laughs> badass. Do you wish that was different? Hell yeah. I'm 53 years old. You don't want to talk about some real stuff. I don't want to, you know, I'm not 17 years old. Right. You know? I mean, I always rather talk about life and real things, rather, you know, than pounding my fist in the air, you know? I feel like Typo carved out a place for men maybe maybe in younger generations maybe it's like maybe the waves are coming now that realize that there's nothing unmanly about being romantic you know or like expressing heartache or expressing real emotions that aren't just like anger <laughs> yeah well that's very one-dimensional if you're just expressing anger so i think god um one thing Peter definitely got right was he had he definitely expressed the full spectrum of emotions, from screaming anger and emotional agony to romance and everything between love and everything between. That's how it should be if you're an artist. You know, you should be exploring all the aspects of emotion in life. You know, I mean, I think. Mm -hmm. So you know, the type will have a broad spectrum of expression in it. How do women treat the band differently now? Like when you go on tour, how do women interact with rock and roll differently than they did 25 years ago? Hmm. Well, I, thought about, I don't think that, I'm sure there isn't any difference. There's definitely a difference with me because I'm in an older age group now. <laughs> <laughs> so they definitely treat me different. I treat them different, you know, but I'm sure young bands out there, they're going through the same crazy shit. That we went through, you know, some primal things will never change. Right. So skipping forward to modern day non-typo stuff, when you're on tour now, how do you and your wife maintain good communication? Well, it's a lot easier. I mean, you know, I can FaceTime just like this, right? I mean, years ago, when I first started going on tour, there were no cell phones. Like I said, I remember my wife breaking up with me on a payphone in Sunset Boulevard. You know, and the operator going, would you please insert four more quarters? You know? <laughs> so you could really get lost back then. You know, if I didn't, if I wish she was mad at me and I was mad at her and I didn't want to call her, we didn't talk to each other. We didn't talk to each other sometimes for two weeks, you know, when I was on the road. Now, you know, there's people backstage, there's people at the show, they have video, they're, they're, they're filming everything and, and sending my wife clips and... So it's a lot easier to, to stay uh, in touch with each other. It's a lot easier for her to track me. Let me put it that way. <laughs> 
do you ever long for the days of uh being able to just sort of disappear oh yeah of course of course of course who wants to feel like they're being spied on you know everywhere they go you know <laughs> You know, and especially me, I do so much stupid, retarded stuff, you know, and it always ends up getting, you know, getting filmed by somebody's phone, ending up on some social media site. <laughs> has that happened recently? I'm sure it has. I haven't been on social media for the last few months, but. That's probably a good thing. Yeah. It's probably a good, a good time in history to not be on social media. <laughs> <laughs> so. What do you think is the the biggest or like the best advice that you could give people that want to have a long lasting marriage like yours? Hmm. Um, Jesus Christ, I wish I could really define that. Yeah, you know? it's amazing that my wife is still with me. I have no idea why she's still with me. <laughs> <laughs> she should have left me decades ago. But uh, one thing of obvious, it's just the obvious things, you know, you, you have to really see eye to eye on, on major things in life, you know, like the major things like politics and, and uh, where you, your, your general outlook on life, your philosophies, you know, whatever they might be, you know, your religion or whatever that might be. And if you can end up having kids, of course, you have to see the eye to eye, eye, to eye and how to, how to raise kids. So those are really important things, and um, and uh, of course, not, uh, having things in common, too. Likes, what you like, what you're into. And that might change, you know, as, as time goes on. So you also have to be open to those changes in the other person, what they're into. What they are, new things that they, that they are into, you know, you have to keep up with that, so... And if you want to stay married as a man for any length of time, the usually the answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> Whatever the question is. <laughs> Even if you have no intentions on doing it. <laughs> They'll figure that out later. <laughs> Just dissolves an argument in the moment. <laughs> what do you think is the biggest misconception about Peter? Hmm. You know, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of the con conceptions the general public has of him is that he's this big, huge, you know, tough guy, you know, full of muscle and he's mean and all that stuff. And he's quite the opposite. He was a hypersensitive, ultra-sensitive human being, very complicated, ultra-sensitive human being. I mean, it took a lot just to get him to leave his house and go on the road, you know. Uh, he was very shy, extremely shy. Hypersensitive person, you know. I mean, you would know that if you're a typo fan because you read the lyrics and you saw the interviews, you know. But yeah. the people in the general public don't that don't delve into all that. They see just the outer image, you know. And what was your favorite thing about Peter? What did you love most about him? His sense of humor. He made me laugh my ass off, you know, for 25 years more. It's funny. You know, we, we can always hang out anytime, anywhere, drink and laugh, no matter, <laughs> no matter how horrible the situation was. And we've been in a lot of horrible situations. How does it feel to be in a band that is regarded as such a legendary piece of rock and roll history? Oh, I'm proud of it. You know? I have a sense of pride. And, um, yeah, I'm very proud, you know, that we achieved what we were going to achieve, what we ended up achieving. We never thought we were going to get that far, you know, mm -hmm. it would last that long. And, um, I guess in a large way, having some some amount of permanence through art or your music is really the goal, you know, and uh, we've achieved that to some degree. We'll, the music will be around for a long time, hopefully long, a lot longer than me. It's a great feeling. It's a really great feeling when, you know, I'm walking through Manhattan or I'm on the subway or whatever and I run into fans, you know, they just come up to me and it's always like a whole lot of love and, you know, and they're honest, honest love. That's great. That must feel really good. 
Yeah. It does. Well, we are all incredibly, incredibly grateful for the contributions that you have given us and how much you've moved us. Typo is an amazing band. and Thank you. And um, thank you so much for sharing all that with me. I feel I feel really honored to hear all those crazy backstage stories and all that. The Anytime. James Hetfield one especially tickled me. <laughs> 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 anyway, thank you so much, Kenny. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, cool. Thanks, Kat. This episode of Hot-Blooded was hosted, written, and produced by me, Kat Jones. It was edited and co-produced by Evan Dulaney, and the theme song was written by Jordan Olds. The logo was made by Corey Largent, who goes by Insane Clam Pasta on Instagram, and additional graphics were made by Jonathan Amaya. Special thanks to Travis Riley and Mark Abramson. Thank you so much to everyone who subscribed on Patreon, but especially those who subscribed to the Lover tier, Janet Talenko davis Mark Bassett, Rob Menzer, Ryan Cardi, Ronnie Rodriguez, and the band Drug Salad. If you love this podcast and want me to keep making these, despite my already insane schedule and lack of sleep, consider subscribing on Patreon. It puts a smile on my face and makes me feel a little bit less crazy. It also helps me and Evan, the amazing editor of this show, slash my BFF, who patiently deals with me every week, pay for everything we need to keep this thing running. You can find it at patreon.com slash hotbloodedpodcast. If you ever want to shoot us a tip but don't want to subscribe, you can also cash app us at hotbloodedpodcast. To learn more about the show, head to hotbloodedpodcast.com. And if you have any comments, concerns, or love letters, you can send them to me at hotbloodedpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week. And until then, go listen to October Rust and daydream about all the hot people in your life who got away. Mm